Today, we're pleased to share with you an audio essay written and read by Mark Talbot, entitled Four Questions About Our Suffering. Mark's new book is called Give Me Understanding That I May Live, Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan from Crossway. Four Questions About Our Suffering, written and read by Mark Talbot. First question, why are we to rejoice in our suffering? Several New Testament passages report the joy our Lord's first followers felt when they suffered. Several others tell us that as Jesus' followers, we should, indeed we must rejoice, be glad, and consider ourselves blessed when we suffer or undergo persecution, trials, or any other sort of difficulties. But undergoing these things is by its very nature unpleasant. And in fact, suffering can be defined as experiencing something that is unpleasant enough that we want it to end. So why are we to rejoice in our suffering? It's because we are to possess the mind of Christ, who even though he was God, emptied himself to become a human being so that he could suffer and die for our sins. During his earthly lifetime, his disciples had rejected his claim that he, as the one whom they had become convinced was the Messiah sent to redeem Israel, would have to suffer and die. When he died, His death seemed to clinch the fact that he was not the promised one. But his resurrection changed everything, convincing them that the way to everlasting life does not go around suffering and death, but through them. Jesus' first followers rejoiced in their suffering because it assured them that they were following in his footsteps. Very early in his earthly ministry, Jesus had told them, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Luke tells us that early in the growth of the church in Acts, after the Jewish authorities had arrested and jailed the apostles, and then had them flogged and ordered them not to speak in Jesus' name, the apostles left them rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. We should rejoice when we suffer similarly for the same reason. It shows that we are, as we must be if we are to be saved, publicly identified with our Lord. And we also rejoice because suffering often proves itself to be an unsought gift. As both Paul and James tell us, in the midst of some grave illness, accident, or tragedy, we will find something happening within us that may not change our outward situation, but that builds our character by correcting our scale of values so that we can see more clearly life's true meaning. When I broke my back after falling off a Tarzan-like rope swing when I was 17, I found that most of the teenage trivialities that had been distracting me 
fell away, enabling me to concentrate on what was truly important. And my struggles with paralysis ever since have kept me close to God. That was also the experience of a high school student I knew, who when she was diagnosed with an almost certainly terminal cancer, found her sense of God's spirit witnessing in her heart of God the Father's love for her to be infinitely more precious than any presumption that she would live a normal life. In the midst of her suffering and even at her death, her fellowship with God enabled her to lift her eyes from the things of this world and filled her with hope for the glories of the life to come. So suffering can corroborate that we are Christ's and mortify our worldliness and sin. Second question, why do we suffer in the ways that we do and why do some suffer much more than others? Sometimes the specific ways in which we or those we love are suffering puzzle us. Why are you plagued with depression? Why did I get cancer just as my career was taking off? Why does your mother have Alzheimer's, especially since she worked hard to keep herself in good physical and mental shape? Why does our son suffer from same-sex attraction? Sometimes the enormously uneven distribution of suffering also puzzles us. Why do some of us suffer so little and others so much? The sage who wrote Ecclesiastes makes it clear that the answers to some of these questions are beyond our finding out. He says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Often the best we can do is to attribute these disquieting unpredictabilities to the fall. When God created the world, he created it to be inhabited. He didn't create it to be an empty chaos. It was to be a home of stable processes that we could progressively understand and explore. But after Adam and Eve rebelled, by disobeying God's command not to eat from the forbidden tree, creation itself was subjected to futility. Now, the causal regularities that God has written into the world's DNA have become somewhat opaque to us. And so from our standpoint, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, time and chance happens to us all. So we often can't know why some suffer as they do. Perhaps your depression has its roots in the world's damaged causal regularities, especially since your father and grandmother suffered from depression too. We can know that the excruciating loss that the 19th century theologian Robert Dabney felt when three of his young sons died from diphtheria would be prevented now because there's a diphtheria vaccine. 
And what the author of Ecclesiastes emphasizes is that not even the wisest among us can make sense of it all. Now, all we can know is that ultimately nothing that happens to us falls out of God's hand. And that if we are his children, then nothing can separate us from his love. As our Lord showed in his model prayer, it is right for us to pray that God will deliver us from evil. Yet God deigns for the world to go on in ways we only partly understand. Often, he uses the world's causal processes to show his goodness to us. As Paul says in Acts 14, giving us rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and thus satisfying our hearts with food and gladness. But who knows how often something bad befalls us because God has chosen not to intervene in the world's fallen causal processes when they are about to bring us disability or disease. Third question. What should we think about the mild forms of suffering that we regularly encounter in daily life. They should remind us that something has gone wrong in our world. We learn about some of this kind of suffering in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. In the midst of declaring the dooms that would fall upon the serpent, the woman, and the man because of their disobedience, God proclaimed the protevangelium the first glimmer of the gospel's good news. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. While suffering the pains of childbirth and the ups and downs of marriage, Eve and all of those after her could remember God's promise. And when scratching out a living for his family from the now-cursed ground, and even as his painful toil foretold that someday he would again become mere dust, Adam could anticipate a time yet unknown when God would send into the world another Adam, a greater son. Our world includes much pleasure but it also includes much painful toil and weariness. Both the pleasure and the pain should prompt us each day to look up and seek God, remembering both the paradise that sin has lost and anticipating the paradise that our Lord's righteousness will regain. Fourth question. Why doesn't God usually answer our prayers for him to end our suffering? Perhaps the most perplexing aspect of Christian suffering follows from our misunderstanding some words that our Lord addressed to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. He said, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, he said, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? 
or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? It's easy for us to take those promises as blank checks. As our Lord said later in Matthew chapter 21, whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. And since it's easy for us to take these promises as blank checks, then as Bruner writes, everyone who has made a difficult prayer request and who has honestly mustered as much faith as possible and then has been disappointed has read verses like these and been hurt. But just a little thinking should make it clear that these promises can't be blank checks. Just as what a child may consider to be a good gift may not be what a parent considers to be a good gift, so what we as parents consider to be good gifts may not be what God considers to be good gifts. As James puts it, we must do more than ask. We must ask for the right reasons. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Placed as they are near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it should be clear that our Lord's words in that sermon should guide our asking, seeking, and knocking. We will ask for spiritual gifts, such as righteousness, gentleness, and purity of heart. We will seek to be the world's salt and light. We won't be knocking as self-seekers who are anxious to secure our earthly lives and eager to store up worldly wealth. We will pray for the accomplishment of our Father's will rather than our own, and not simply that we may experience miracles done in his name. Asking, seeking, and knocking like this, we can pray freely and confidently, knowing that God will supply whatever we truly need, even if we only discover through what he grants and what he lovingly withholds, what the good gifts are that he has promised and what it is that we should not seek. That was four questions about our suffering written and read by Mark Talbot. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.